Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. And now it is my pleasure, as I've already alluded to, (laughs) to welcome uh, Dr. Scott Sundquist, uh, again, president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, has served the church worldwide and has deep connections to the church all over the world, Um, is an incredible scholar of the church and of church history, um, and an incredible follower of Jesus, and so we're so grateful. Uh, the two Gordon Conwell alumni who are in here are incredibly grateful to have him with us, uh, and the rest of you will be <laughs> in just a few moments. So with no further ado, Dr. Scott Sundquist. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I must admit, I feel overdressed. I apologize for that. <laughs> but <clears throat> the reason I do this is so people can say, who's the guest preacher? And, oh, he's the, he, that's the guy over there. Uh, I want to make a couple of prefatory comments. Uh, number one, I've been very blessed to be able to travel around the world and to preach and teach and learn. And whenever I get to go to another church, sometimes I just feel like breaking down and crying because I realize the power of the church community globally. And I look in your faces, and I know we've all suffered. We've all struggled to be, stay together as a church and to be faithful But this is God's only answer to the world's problems, is the church. He doesn't have a plan B. So don't go and think, oh, if only the seminaries would do better, they'll save the world. The seminaries won't save the world, nor will governments, nor will little community action groups save the world. God's put all of his purpose for humanity in the church. And I'm real excited to be here today when you got the card and the new name. What, what a joy, you know, for me to be here. I was wondering, where'd you get the name Hillside? <laughs> Maybe somebody can explain that to me later. But uh, Hillside Church, I saw this, on, I heard this out loud when you read this, and um, I, I don't want to be, be critical or anything, Brandon, but, but there's one little correction I'd like to make, okay? Is that all right? Pray, ditto. Attend, yeah. Invite, yeah, bring your friends. Serve, absolutely. Give, yeah, more. Okay. I'm I'm on your team, Brandon. Okay. Share in community. That's too long. It should just be go. It should just be go. In other words, it's not just share in community here. But it, it could be God's called you to Haiti. And I'm a, a, a missiologist. I wrote a book where I said the church has only two purposes. I'll get to the sermon, don't worry. The church has only two purposes. It doesn't have like five purposes. One is Wednesday night suppers and you know, that kind of thing. That's not a purpose. It only has two purposes. And one is worship. That's what we're doing today, lifting up Jesus Christ, okay? And the other is mission. The last words Jesus gave, remember... They worshipped him, and some doubted in Matthew 28. And then he said, go, therefore. That is basically the purpose that he gave us. Worship and mission interpenetrate one another. Sometimes when I come out of worship, I just want to go tell everybody about what happened. You cannot believe. You know, the music, the lives changed. This guy came forward whose life was destroyed, and look what happened, you know? And you want to tell people. So worship overflows into mission. And then when we go out in mission... We talked to people. I talked to a cop yesterday, okay? I was at the uh, American Academy of Religion, the Society of Biblical Literature. That's where 
So I, I go up to the, the I, I like to go to the security people. There were these two law enforcement officers, okay? You know, they had guns and bulletproof vests, like they're afraid religious people are going to do something bad. And like, we look very dangerous. I've been studying the New Testament. Look out. And so I came down and I talked to this guy and I said, hey, there's two guys standing next to each other. What do you think of these people here? Because they have all kinds of conventions at the convention center, right? You know, the NRA. So I said, what do you think of these people? He said, well, they're, they're really low key. <laughs> and I said, well, there's a reason for that. What's that reason? I said, they're all introverts. <laughs> they are. Is this an introverts convention? I said, no. They all have PhDs. <laughs> you know, so they're all introverts. And basically, people get PhDs, they're introverts. And so what, what, what kind of things do they study? I said, well, they're religious people. Religious people. What kind of religion? Well, you know, some good and some bad. Well, what's good religion? I said, Jesus. I said, Jesus. When people follow Jesus, that's, that's good religion. Yeah. So this one guy started sharing with his friend. He says, what do you mean about that? Well, don't you go to church? So then I left them. So I made it possible for his friend to talk to his friend about Jesus. Just a little bit of going. So I would encourage you to, to think about share and community. <laughs> Just turn into ghosts. Okay. I've, I've been to get out of here real quickly. All right. Now, another mistake I made is I gave you the wrong text. I was going to preach on Revelation 7. But I think in light of our community and our society, I've changed my text. And if you have your Bibles or your phones that have Bibles on them, or if you have the Bible memorized, turn to Luke 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 27. Luke 6, 27. This is from the Sermon on the Plain. And I think we need this. Luke 6, 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to them the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners led to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because... He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. One word that came to my mind as you were sharing about the church and that kind of commitment, there are not many places in the world that we ask for that kind of commitment. That's very countercultural. To say, I don't feel like getting up on Sunday morning, I'm going to go to Starbucks, but I'm going to go to church and be with God's people, not just for myself, but for them. That's very countercultural, to live for other people. 
it's very countercultural to sign up and say, I'm going to be a member and committed. This little passage here is so countercultural. It's almost impossible to follow. I really believe that. So I would like to begin by connecting my work as a seminary president and my life's passion with your calling as a local church in Colorado. We both live in a difficult and trying age. I'm trying to lead a seminary at a time when higher education is in complete disarray. Churches also are struggling to get people back to church and to discover what it is to be the church on the other side of a pandemic. Pastors are leaving churches. They say about 25% of pastors in the last two years have left, taken early retirement and left. It's just so stressful, and people are so angry, and it's so difficult. You can't do the right thing. We're discovering that it me- what it means to train pastors and missionaries in a post-pandemic world, online, hybrid, in-person, intensives. You know, how are we going to get people to come? It's just so complex. It used to be easy. You know, you sell your home and you go to seminary and you live in an apartment. You take your classes and then you go out to a church. Well, now, you know, people are sitting in bed and they're Zooming in classes and it's just, it's bizarre. Seminaries are struggling. People are taking early retirement and some seminaries are closing or merging with others. People are anxious and often angry. You know that? (laughs) You probably experienced it. Furthermore, we have problems in churches with people almost living with alternate realities about politics, race, and international events. I was talking to a professor this morning. He said one of his best friends was convinced that the lizard people are running the nation and the world. The lizard people? I mean, there's no evidence of this at all. And this guy believes it, and he's a bright person. People are anxious. Furthermore, we have problems in churches with people almost living with these alternate realities. Seminaries are also have troubles negotiating appropriate theologies with the challenges of race issues, sexuality, and being prophetic in our age. What does it mean to be prophetic? It means to say something rude that you believe in and you don't care how other people respond. I've had a lot of people being prophetic to me. Wow. Christianity is not just liberal Christianity that's in decline today. No, all of Christianity is in decline. And this affects seminaries and churches. In light of these common problems, very complex problems, I believe seminary education is not less important, but it's even more important than 20 years ago. And yet seminary education is often reduced to a certificate. We have fewer and fewer required courses. Fewer and fewer courses, you get through seminary now in like two and a half years or maybe two years. I was talking to a professor this morning and says, we used to have two-year MAs, now they're one year. Church leadership is more complex, but education is valued less. Pastors are quitting because of the stress, and yet we provide less support and encouragement for deep formation. And that's what we need. And that's what we're talking about today, deep formation. In a word... We live in a complex age of anxiety and insecurity. Our insecurities express themselves as fear, anger, and choosing sides. If you're insecure, it's really nice to know you're on the right side, right? So you quick jump, oh, they're the enemy, and you're on my side. We must know who is good on our side and who is the enemy against us. What's to be done? I believe our Bible reading today is critical if Christianity will have a significant future in the United States or even in the world. 
Today I'm focusing on the radical nature of Christian faith. These are hard teachings that, by God's grace, will bother you when you drive home today. So please listen carefully to some hard teachings. Allow yourself to be exposed and then comforted. Although our gospel text this morning is 213 words, I counted them, I will only preach on three words. It will be enough. I will come back some other time to preach on the other 210 words (laughs) if this goes well. So here's the text for my sermon. Love your enemies. That's all. Love your enemies. It's repeated twice in the passage. It is a three-word command. It is easy to understand. Simple in meaning. Simple in expression. But almost impossible to obey. And yet... We're treading here today on very precious holy ground, so I'll take off my shoes because I see that we do take off shoes here. This is very sacred. We're on very holy ground here. This little command is at the heart of the Christian life. It is the foundation of what we are to do and be as followers of Jesus Christ It is not only the heart and foundation of the Christian life, it's the heart and the foundation of the gospel. Yes, think of it. Jesus' love for us was love for enemy. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still rejecting him, he loved us to the point of dying for us. Love your enemies is acting like Jesus today. I would like to reflect on this little section of Scripture in the heart of the Sermon on the Plain from an evangelistic perspective, not a pastoral perspective. In other words, I think it's a command which has an evangelistic import. Why? Well, because as I was studying this passage, it became clear to me that this is one of the most countercultural commands in Scripture. We live in an age of looking out for number one, And you are what you feel. Did you hear what I said? Let me repeat. Because we all need to hear this out loud so you cannot deny what the preacher said. So listen carefully. We live in an age of looking out for number one. And you are what you feel. Two different values, but they're interrelated. What is taught here in Luke 6 flies in the face of our cultural values. Jesus is saying, don't look out for number one, but deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. He's also saying you are not what you feel, but you are what I made you to be. In fact, what seems like the most obvious thing to do, defend yourself or get even, right, is the very thing you should not do. So my thinking is, what would stand out more in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our families, than acting like this? Let me first highlight some of the contrasts from Jesus' sermon that that came earlier in chapter 6 of Luke. Here are three very countercultural teachings we should embrace. Number one, the world says, provide for yourself a comfortable life. Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to you who are rich. 
The world says, protect yourself from people who insult you and reject you. Jesus says, rejoice in that day when you're insulted and rejected. And leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Wow. The world says, get even or sue someone who attacks you and treats you unjustly. Maybe some of you haven't been sued. I've had people threaten to sue me. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Wow. Let's think about this for a minute. In our culture today, if someone is your enemy, you can expect to be sued or attacked on social media. Maybe some of you have experienced this. Do you have an enemy who has criticized you on social media or gossip? Or do you have a former friend who has gossiped about you? If you don't, you may not be paying attention. <laughs> Our culture is so divisive and antagonistic now, it's hard to imagine that even the nicest people here, and you all look like very nice people, actually, have not had some criticism or confrontations. So let's imagine one of your enemies. I'd like you to do this little thought experiment with me. Somebody who you avoid, somebody who's gossiped about you or spread rumors about you, Somebody maybe who's even been more aggressive and yelled at you in public or something. Do you have an enemy? Who is that person? Think about them, if you will, for a minute. Picture them in your mind. Do you have that person in your mind? I can't finish the sermon unless you do, so please do. Okay, you have that person in your mind. Can you picture them and what they've said to you or done to you or that expression if I can pull together a good biblical theology of this command, Jesus is saying the following to you and to me. So I'm going to make this personal about the person that you're thinking about. This is what I think Jesus is speaking to me. Listen carefully. Scott, remember that Sally is not that different from you. She's also insecure and she makes statements that she wishes she had not said. She gets angry just like you. Both of you are sinners saved by grace. In addition, just like you, I have placed my very image on her. Underneath that anger and jealousy and all the mucky stuff she spews out is something beautiful. She has something of me in her, Scott. That image needs to be expressed to others, and right now it's not. Don't prevent that beautiful image of me from being expressed, Scott. You need to help her reveal that beauty to others. If you get even or ignore her, you continue to be part of the problem. She needs what you needed, and she needs to be given what I gave you, Scott. Love. She needs to be loved. I know she's acting like an enemy now, and she may not even use kind words ever with you. Don't feel like you have to protect yourself, Scott. You can't. I will protect you. Yes, it may not turn out well if you reach out to her. Oh, she may throw it right back in your face. But I only ask of you one thing. Love. Find a way to show her love. She needs to be loved, not judged. 
I will do that. I'm the judge. You are to love. For her sake and for the sake of my reputation in this world, that others might believe, love her, Scott. Love her. That's my thought experiment. I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true. I've been given, been a little free with imagination here, I know, but I think this is good theology. We are to love our enemies. This does not mean that we ignore evil or hurts or injustices. Truth is an order of love, so we have to deal with these true hurts. So we must speak truth, and we should expect truth from others. However, in all honesty and with kindness and holiness, we need still to love our enemies. Let me try another angle about why this is so evangelistic. When we love our enemies, people notice. People have come to faith just through love and forgiveness. Prison guards, soldiers, spouses, students, teachers, even coaches have come to faith when they've seen enemies or themselves being loved. I've met some of these people, Vietnamese guards, who came to faith because of the witness of people in prison who loved the guards. Such a concept is almost inhuman. Well, it is, it is inhuman. It's divine. It's actually the core of what it means to be fully and truly human, to imitate God and reveal his love, which is what this is. Loving enemies makes us fully human. Again, loving our enemies makes us fully what we're meant to be. I think this is at the radical core of the Christian faith, enemy loving. In our fallen world, it is irrational. However, it's the very nature of God in whose image we were made. What other great teacher or prophet has said something so radical as to love your enemy? I've studied religions in the doctoral level. I was required to do that. It was very helpful for me because I could see just how beautiful Jesus is in light of all these different religions in the world. What about Zoroaster or Moses or Mohammed or the Buddha? Karl Marx? <laughs> Mao Zedong? Did they teach that? Well, in Hinduism, you do not find this teaching. In fact, Hinduism at its core is a caste system where you're divided from people. It separates people and prevents such love of enemies. Hinduism is a ritualistic religion, not a religion of ethics and morality. Therefore, it's important to carry out rituals and ritual cleansing. There's no concept of love your enemy. Buddhism. The core is really to seek enlightenment by being unattached from all the feelings and desires. It's a personal pilgrimage and a personal escape from the endless cycle of rebirths or reincarnation. Love, especially of the enemy, requires some real commitment. We can say some real holy attachment or service to others. Love is attachment, not unattachment. It's the exact opposite. In Islam, do we have such a teaching in Islam? There are places in the Quran where it gets very close. But there are also many places where Muslims are commanded to, quote, strike upon their necks those who refuse to deny that God is Trinity. There are commands to kill your enemy. The unrepentant enemy of Allah is to be killed. 
Jesus never commanded his disciples to hurt those who disagree with him. Jesus didn't even say, spare those who repent or love those who admit their error. No, he said, love your enemy. God's love is not conditional. It is absolute, pure, and holy. We could go on through many pagan religions and find teachings to be reconciled or not to hurt or to live in harmony, but not the strong command to love your enemy. Look at again at what we just read this morning. To those who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then again in verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. I mean, you can't escape from it. Again and again, love your enemies. This is not just harmony to be reconciled with another person. Oh, no. It's not even just ignore them, avoid them. No. What we're commanded, and it is a command, it's not a suggestion, is that we should actually accept the loss of money, a coat, a shirt, a reputation, or other goods so that your enemy would be blessed. Love costs something. Often it costs you and your, your reputation and your control over others. When you love them, you give up that control. I used to ask my boys when they were in middle school and high school, what's the hardest thing you'll have to do? It's not to break the high school record and long jump or to win the state soccer championship. That's not the hardest thing you have to do. The hardest thing you'll have to do, and you have to do it over and over again, is to forgive someone. That's the hardest thing you'll have to do. I think it's true. But forgiveness is just the other strand of this strong cord regarding enemy. In order to love your enemy, to really bless them and do good to them, you first have to forgive them. You must go to God and ask him for the love and power to forgive them for the pain and loss they have caused you. The root meaning of forgive in the Greek, I thought I'd bring in a little Greek here because I went to Gordon-Conwell, is aphemi, to release. Isn't that great? To forgive someone is to release them. Because if you don't forgive them, you keep them in bondage, and they know that you have control of them. But when we forgive them, we release them. Release them of resentment, of anger. They're free. The first step in loving an enemy is to release them from resentment and anger or the desire for revenge. Forgive. Release. Pause. Let's put this in context. When I asked you to think about an enemy, it wasn't like the kind of enemy that friends of mine in China or in Egypt might think about. When we talk about enemies in the United States, it's different from when Christians in Iran, Afghanistan, China talk about enemies. Our enemies are mostly people who hold us down in our jobs, who gossip about us, who threaten to sue us. When I ask you to think about your enemies, did you think of a person who's trying to kill you or put you in prison or send you into exile or get the the names of the members of the church so you can put them in prison? No, we don't have enemies like that. Since I teach global Christianity and mission, let me put this passage in perspective with two global examples. Last fall, I received the manuscript of a forthcoming book, I think it's out now, 
on sermons from unregistered church leaders in China. It is unbelievable. The title of the book is Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. It's a remarkable book of sermons written to exhort Christians around the world. They wrote the sermons in many ways for us to be able to suffer with Christ and to repent of our wrongdoings and to forgive those who hurt us. I just think that's amazing. To be willing to suffer with Christ, to repent of our wrongdoings, amazing, and to forgive those who hurt us. The, the sufferings of Christians is caused by people, people who need to repent, but also people who need to be forgiven. These Chinese preachers are dealing with real enemies who can put them in prison, or worse. It's a remarkable book, really. So very Christ-like in attitudes towards enemies. I was blown away. I mean, it was a page-turner. The things that they would say, oh my gosh, you could be put in prison for these things. And they're boldly talking about confessing their own sins and forgiving their enemies. My second global example is from one of our alumni from Gordon-Conwell. Reverend Marcus Doe, who was from Liberia. And you can actually find his bird catching rice birds. Amazing testimony. He also has a, um, a TED Talk. His name is Marcus Doe. Marcus had a real enemy. In the chaos of the Civil War in Liberia in the 90s, Marcus's father ushered his sons out of the country to Ghana for safety. His father stayed behind, was captured, and brutally beaten and murdered. Marcus, an orphan, later ended up as a refugee. At age 12, he's in Boston with his older brother. All the loss, the loneliness, and the pain. As Marcus expressed it, I wanted to find the soldier or soldiers who made me an orphan and make them pay. Wartime fantasies of food were replaced by fantasies of vengeance. In fact, Marcus would dream of killing the murderer of his father. He would dream that he had a machete in one hand and a, and a pistol in the other hand. The fantasy was played out over thousands of times in his head. He would dream of plunging the machete into the murderer's gut and then to shoot him in that brain at the same time. Marcus said, I hated General X because of what he did to my father and what he had done to me. For 16 years, until I was 28, I had this dream or nightmare of killing this unknown man. Then, with some counseling and prayer, he notes, I read Jesus' words about forgiving in Matthew 6. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, I continued to sit in a chair and carry on imaginary conversations with General X, but now I began to say, I forgive you for what you have done. Eventually, he got on a plane and he went to Liberia to find this general and tell him he was forgiven. He never found General X. But he found many people just like him who were living with deep guilt. He said, no one deserves to be defined by the worst moments of their life. Amazing. Hate had shrunk and withered his soul. Forgiveness and the desire to love recovered, rebuilt, and renovated the image of God known as Marcus Doe. By the way, he's a pastor in Arizona today. 
and he's doing great. He's got two children. Friends, forgiveness makes life possible. And forgiveness makes it possible to obey these three little words, love your enemy. It's a tall order. But we have an example, and our example has given us the power to go beyond tolerate, beyond reconcile, to love. Love our enemy. Nothing could be so central to the Christian life than these three little words, love your enemy. I believe nothing could be more necessary for our Christian witness. The world, our society, our nation needs to see Jesus. And when we love our enemies, they begin to see him. Our witness, when we love our enemies, reveals Jesus and shows what God is really like, what, what he's really like, and that he's alive today. He's alive. He's alive in the act of loving our enemies. What a powerful witness this is. What a lovely picture. What a remarkable, even miraculous joy. So please, so that the world might believe, please love your enemies. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.